Father, you're so much greater than anything that we could ever begin to comprehend, explain, or understand. And we, this morning, sit before you, Lord, as your sons, appreciate, Lord, that you've adopted us, that you've called us by name, that you know us, Lord, and that you're committed to finish the work that you've begun within our lives. And so we just present ourselves to you, Lord, on the altar of living sacrifice, and we pray that you would come into this meeting this morning, Lord, this time that we have. We ask that uh, you would do so much more, Lord, than just teach us the word. Lord, although that's so, so good, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us personally. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come alongside of us and, and that you'd speak to us about our lives, our calling, our families, our jobs, our destiny, Lord, and, and that you would just bring our lives into perspective. And so we pray, Father, that the brightness of your light would just clear away the fog that may be around our minds, Lord, right now as we have so many different things going on, Lord, and, and conflicts and problems and worries and cares. Lord, we just pray that this time would be a time that we could be set apart for you. We pray, Father, that you would give us vision. We pray as a group, Lord, that you'd give us vision as the men of this church, Lord, that, that we would see clearly uh, the calling that you have on us, Lord, to take the lead and, uh, and to be men of God, to be the example of the believer. And, and we know, Lord, that that's not something that you've given to the women, that, but it's what you've given to us, the men, Lord. But we lack vision, and so we pray, Father, that you would inspire us, that you would help us to see, Lord, that we are the future of this church, um, and, and that you've given us a calling, Lord, a privilege to carry the torch, to carry the lamp, Lord, to, to shine it forth, to set an example. So we pray, Father, that you'd help us as dads to be the example at home. You'd help us as husbands to lead our wives and that we wouldn't wait for their lead in things spiritual. That as the men of the church, you would give us the, the ability to lead, Lord, and that you'd help us. And so we pray, Father, that you would give us a fresh filling with your spirit this morning. We ask that the word that we hear and the things that we learn would not just be facts, Lord, that, that we can add to uh, 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 the book of our mind, Lord but that these things would just serve to help us know you more, to depend more upon you, to call out on your name, to recognize your work within our lives, and to help others as well. And so we just pray, Lord, be with us this morning. Draw close to each one of us, Lord. And, uh, and, and just be in everything that's said here, Lord, in this time. And then as we, we talk and pray later and fellowship, Lord, just be in our midst. And Father, we just pray together, we agree together right now, and we just pray for this church. We ask you, Lord, that there would be a spirit of unity. We pray that you would continue, Lord, to pour out your spirit here, that there would be salvation, and that this would continue to be a place where you delight, Lord, to, to walk. Your word says that you walk in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, Lord. And, and so we just pray that it would please you to walk here. And we pray, Father, that this church would be all that you want it to be, that you would uh, raise up those whom you're calling, Lord, into uh, leadership or servant roles, Lord, and, and that you would just protect us, Lord, from every influence, from every uh, plight of Satan, every uh, weapon that's formed against us, Lord, and that there would just be grace here. Like it says in Acts, that great grace was upon them all. And so we ask you, Lord, to, to help our church. Be with Bobby and Liz, Lord. Be with uh, the, the, the decision makers. Be with the ministry heads. Be with uh, 
the musicians, Lord, be with the people in this church, that they would be raised up, Lord, and that they would be true disciples of Christ. And so we ask you, Lord, to do that. And, and we give thanks for the privilege that we have of being called by your name in this, this season of, 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 uh, of your plan. Lord, help us. Give us vision for our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. All right, if you have a Bible, Revelation chapter 12. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 2 says this. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search it out. It's the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it's the honor of kings to search it out. And the reason I quote that verse is not to emphasize the honor of the king's part, but rather the glory of God part. And that is that it is the glory of God to conceal a thing. And if you've been walking with the Lord for any period of time, or maybe even just a short period of time, it doesn't take long to discover that that is one of the chief M.O.s of God's personality. Is that he conceals. He does not shout from the housetops. He does not make every little intricacy of his personality and his power and his wisdom. He doesn't, he doesn't put it out there in plain sight. It's available. It's searchable. But he doesn't put it out there. He's very humble. You know? and, and the reason that I bring that up at the beginning of this study is because the more and more I look into what the Bible reveals about our adversary, about Satan, the more I realize how little he really knew about God prior to his fall. <laughs> because if he had known even the basic things of what we know about God, he never would have launched a rebellion in heaven thinking that he could in some way overthrow <laughs> the authority of, of the whole existence, you know. And, and so what we discover, it, you know, in knowing God and who he is and seeing Satan and how he fell, you know, what we realize is that Satan's idea or concept or what he was able to convince himself of concerning God is that he thought, well, that God, yes, he is number one. He's on the throne. However, he's weak. From looking at the way God leads and the way God, you know, reveals and what would be known, his first assessment is that God is weak, that he's vulnerable. Also, that he's uninvolved. He's detached. He kind of just lets things play out. He's laid back. He's carefree. He doesn't intervene or interrupt the, the, the ebb and flow of things that are going on. And, and, and so, you know, we can be loose as far as what we do because he's uninvolved. He's not, he doesn't care. He also supposed, of course, that he must be naive. That, yeah, although he knows everything or that he's number one, you could pull the wool over his eyes. You could do things outwardly without him understanding the motive or the intent that what's, of, of what's behind it. And there must have been a degree in the mind of Satan of thinking that he's somewhat impotent. 
that there is a point where God is not powerful, that he doesn't have the power to overthrow something, a rebellion, or intervene in something, that there is a point where God's power is limited. And all of those things were characteristics that the angelic realm, that's what they could have easily thought. And the reason is because God doesn't wear it on his sleeve that he can do all of that. Now, that answers the question a little bit, at least a little bit, when you, when you stand back way far away from the whole of God's plan from beginning to end, and you ask the question, why? Why did God create the heavens and the earth? Why did he create the host of the angels? Why did he make man? Why did he do all of that? And part of that answer, I mean, the, we'll spend eternity figuring that out in, in its fullness, but part of the answer is that if he hadn't, none of his attributes and who he is would ever have been known by anyone. And so what all of this does is that it reveals who God is. And God is on top of that, meaning that it was his idea to reveal that, first to the angels, also to us. He wants us to know who he is. See? But it's the glory of God to conceal it, and it's the honor of us to search it out, to understand. These are the things that God wants us to know about himself. Now, last time, which was what, three weeks ago now because, because of the snow last time? Yeah, we, we talked about this, uh, our adversary. We, we began with just the basic question of who he is. And so we looked at the ten names that are given to him in scripture. We're not going to review that now. But then we also looked at his history, how he began, and what happened to him, how he fell. And so we looked at the two classic portions of scripture, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. And, and those passages give us great insight into who he is, the angelic realm you know, it, it shows us things about it, the activities of the things that are going on in heaven, and, and order in the kingdom of God. It gives us kind of a, a loose framework for some of those things that otherwise we wouldn't have. And so, very beneficial passages, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, uh, that, that describe his fall, what happened. And so, from there, uh, now what we're going to look at, and, and today we won't get very far in this, you know, um, maybe we'll see, but we're going to talk about what happened after his fall, what happened after Satan fell. And then we're going to talk about where is he now? What's he about right now? And then we're going to talk about his destiny, where he's going to end up. Uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about his ways and his, his, his wiles, his playbook, if you would. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about some facts and myths about the devil. You know, some things that maybe, uh, you know, traditionally have been handed down that aren't scriptural or some things that maybe we haven't thought of. And then finally, how do we defend ourselves? And, uh, you know, today we're going to talk about what happened after his fall. And it's a, a most interesting passage of scripture. It's Revelation chapter 12, uh, which gives to us some really great insight uh, further into more so um, what happened after the fall of Satan. What happened after he was cast out of heaven? Well, Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven. Now, the book of Revelation toggles back and forth between heaven and earth. Things that are taking place in heaven and things that are taking place on earth. 
Now, the events that happen on Earth obviously follow a progression of time. And there is a progression of time that goes through the book of Revelation. However, when you toggle into heaven, heaven is outside of time. It's not subject to time. Heaven operates on the time scale called eternity. There's no beginning. There's no ending. There's no clock on the wall. There's no such thing as a minute or a second or a year. All of that is subject to our physical universe and really our earth. The time system that we understand is earthly. It's based upon the revolution of the sun, I mean the earth around the sun, and the revolving of the earth on its axis. And that is what dictates time for us. So on a time scale, the place where Revelation chapter 12 falls is the midway point of the tribulation. That time that is yet future, the seven years of judgment where God is going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world. That's sequentially where chapter 12 falls in the time scale on earth. However, we're not on earth. It tells us that a vision, a sign, appeared in heaven. So what John is about to describe to us is not something that happens at the moment of the middle point of the tribulation. But rather, what he sees, the vision that he's about to describe to us, is outside of time altogether. We find that the inception of this vision goes way back even before the foundation of the earth. And then the events that happen, what he's going to describe on an earth perspective, happen at the end of time. And so you see a broad swath of time compacted into what we are looking at here in chapter 12. And the reason that's possible is because we're not on earth in this chapter, we're in heaven. And so in heaven, time is irrelevant as far as it concerns earth. So he says, a vision appeared in heaven, a great wonder, and then he describes what it is. He says, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and upon her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, I'm very grateful that the best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible. That's right. Because when the Bible is the commentary on the Bible, you know that what you're, uh, you know, interpreting is accurate. Now, thankfully, the Bible sheds light for us on what this is because if it didn't then you would have a thousand different opinions and a thousand different comments from a thousand different commentators but the bible lends insight into what this is this woman that is clothed with the sun and the moon and crowned with the 12 stars in genesis chapter 37 the narrative is concerning joseph the son of jacob and there in genesis chapter 37 at the age of 17 we learn that he was favored we learn that he had gifts, that he had promise, that jo Jacob, his father, had kind of appointed him, pre-appointed him as a, a prominent position in the line of the future of, of the nation, you know, giving him the coat of, of, of big sleeves of many colors, you know. And we read in that chapter that Joseph had a dream, two dreams. And in the one dream, all of the sheaves of his brothers bow down to his sheaf as they're binding sheaves in the field. And Joseph, like a wise 17-year-old, goes and tells his brothers about the dream. Don't do that, by the way. If you have a dream like that, keep it to yourself, you know. <laughs> but then he has another dream, and in this one, in the second dream, he says that the sun, the moon, 
and the eleven stars all bowed down to him. The sun, the moon, and the eleven stars. And when he tells the dream, Jacob, in shocked response to what Joseph has just told him, gives to us the interpretation of what this means. He says, Joseph, are you trying to say that your mother and I and your brothers are going to all bow down and worship you? Or, or, you know, give obeisance to you or honor to you? Who is Jacob? Jacob is Israel. His name was changed from heel catcher, supplanter, to Israel. That is governed by God. He became the father, through, of course, the lineage of Abraham, of the nation of Israel. So, Jacob and his 12 sons make up what we would call Israel. And so, who is this woman? What does she represent that John sees now, this wonder that's in heaven? It represents the nation of Israel. That's who John sees here, personified in heaven as a woman that is clothed with the sun and the moon and the 12 stars upon her head as a crown. And then it tells us, verse 2, and it lines right up with that interpretation, that the, what is the primary purpose, the primary function, the primary reason why God created Israel. Look at verse 2. It says, And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. The purpose for God creating Israel as a national entity upon the earth was primarily to bring forth the Messiah into the world. That through this woman, Israel, that would be upon the earth, a child would be born. That child would be the son of David, the ancient of days, the Messiah, the Christ, who would come into the world to be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. That is what that woman exists for Israel primarily, and that is her job, to bring forth this son. Well, verse 3 says that there appeared another wonder in heaven. So now a separate vision, a separate entity that John sees. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns upon his heads. Now, I'm thankful that the best commentary on the Bible is what? (laughs) The Bible. Because that means we can rely upon Scripture to tell us who this is and what this entity is. It doesn't take a whole lot of brain power. In fact, we don't even have to turn the page. Just look at verse 9. If you look at verse 9, we find out exactly who this is. It says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. So we know exactly who this great red dragon is that we're seeing up in verse 3. It's none other than Satan or Lucifer, who we learned last week was the anointed cherub, a created angel, probably the most beautiful, the most glorious of all of the angelic realm, who through pride and ambition fell into iniquity was cast out of heaven and became what we now call the devil and Satan. So that's who this is, this great red dragon that he sees in verse 3. And then he tells us what he did. And this is after his fall. This answers the question, what happened when Satan fell or after the fall of Satan? Look at verse 4. 
It says, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. We'll pause right there for a second. The first thing that happened after the fall of Satan is that there was mutiny. In other words, one-third of all of the angels of God that were created, that existed alongside of Satan, one-third of them joined in the rebellion and fell with him. Now, we don't know how many angels there were when God created them in the beginning. It's probably innumerable. I think the Bible a couple times talks about them in the numbers of 10,000 times 10,000. An innumerable multitude of angels and saints, the Bible talks about. It, and, and oftentimes they are called, as they are here, the stars. And we know the stars to be an innumerable multitude. God knows how many there are, but from your perspective and mine, it's innumerable. It's uncountable. So for one-third of them to fall, that's a very large number. It's a minority, but it's a very large number of, of angels that became demons. And they are the henchmen that operate alongside of Satan, both in the rebellion he launched in heaven and also in the havoc that he wreaks upon the earth. That it isn't Satan alone that operates and does the things that Satan does, but that he has an, a very organized and ordered structure of minions and underlings that do his bidding and that operate on the earth. Paul the Apostle, a couple of times in his epistles, once in Colossians, again in Ephesians and other places, talks about the rank and file of demonic powers. He talks of them as principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age. And he actually arranges them in rank and file, uh, you know, putting them under the bidding of the chief of, uh, uh, of demons, Satan himself. And so we, we know that the, the, the prince of darkness oversees a realm of darkness that propagates darkness. And here we discover that one-third of the angels, so he led a mutiny, a rebellion in heaven, and he convinced one-third of the angels to rebel with him, and it says his tail drew. That word, if you notice there, I'm, I'm, I don't know what it says in other versions, but in the King James it says that his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. It's that there was a, a, a deceptive craftiness where he led them into a rebellion. So the first thing that happened was mutiny. But then, after that, the primary goal and desire of Satan was then to stop God's act of redemption. Notice the second half of verse 4. It says, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. To devour her child as soon as it was born. The second part of his actions after the mutiny was conspiracy. And that conspiracy was to stop God from sending the Savior to redeem mankind from his sins. To thwart God's purpose in redeeming man. Now Satan knew God's plan to send a Savior into the world to redeem man from the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, which is the record of the fall, that's where Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and brought the curse upon themselves. 
And God spoke to each of the involved parties, much like we do as parents, right? What do we do when, when something happens in our house? Uh, you know, our, there's a conflict with the kids. or there's, We segregate them, and then we talk to each one of them, right? And that's what God does, like a wise father here. He sets the serpent over here. He sets the woman over here. He sets the man over here. And then he talks to each one. And when he addresses the serpent, the father himself gives a very informative prophecy. He gives information away to his enemy. It's Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. By the way, it's the first mention of the gospel message in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, unto the serpent, he said, because you have done this, you will slither on your belly. Your food will be the dust of the ground. And then he said this, I will put enmity conflict, hatred between you and the woman, between you and the woman, and between, listen, her seed, notice that your check engine light should go on, (laughs) between her seed and your seed. It, her seed, shall bruise your head crush your head literally in the language, but you shall bruise his heel. Those are the words that God the Father speaks to the serpent concerning his destiny. There will be enmity between your seed and her seed. It shall crush your head, but you shall bruise its heel. And Satan slithered away that day with a smile on his face. Because though Adam and Eve probably had no clue or little clue about what God meant by that, Satan knew exactly what it meant. Is that God was planning to send a savior into the world, born of a virgin, women don't have seed. And that he would take away the sin of the world, crush the head of the serpent, the plan, the iniquity of the serpent. He understood what that was and he slithered away that day with the wheels turning, a plan formulating. I'm going to stop that from happening. That was the conspiracy. I am going to stop God from sending a Savior into the world, and I will do it by one of two ways. I will either make it impossible for him to do it physically, practically, or I will corrupt humanity so greatly that he will not do it, or it's not, it's not even worth it. And so those two plans, those two ploys begin. And we see it from the very beginning. We see Cain and Abel, the very first offspring of Adam and Eve. And we see that Abel, who was a shepherd, offered a lamb. And it says that he was accepted by God. Cain, who offered the works of his own hands, the vegetables of his garden, the sweat of his brow. He offered his works to God. He was refused. And so Satan put it in Cain's heart. Kill him. Kill him. And he killed Abel. Abel, the first one. God said, his blood speaks to me from the ground. Cain was cursed. And Satan thinks, ah, I did it. I stopped God. I stopped him from bringing the man into the world, the Savior. It's not going to happen now, but... Seth came. (laughs) Seth was appointed. And the plan of God continued, but Satan said, I'll corrupt them. And so humanity proceeded 10 generations down to Noah. And the Bible says that the world was so corrupt, that wickedness was so great, that violence was so prevalent, that God decided, I'm just going to wipe out the whole of humanity. I'll, I'll take them all out. And Satan thinks, I did it. I corrupted them so bad that there's no redemption. But 
God saved Noah. He found grace in his eyes. And his three sons joined him on the boat. And God began afresh. And God called Abraham. And the plan continued as they went down through. He couldn't do it. He couldn't stop God by killing Abel. He couldn't stop him through the corruption that came prior to the flood. And then in the process of time, two sons are born to Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And and the promise was Jacob would be the one. And so as Jacob deceived Esau, Satan filled the heart of Esau to kill Jacob. But Jacob escaped out of his hand and Satan wasn't able to stop God's plan. He wasn't able to do it. We see it in the edict of Pharaoh in the days of Moses to kill all of the male Hebrew children. The very heart of Satan to crush them, to stop them. Don't let them be able to propagate, to to be able to expand their influence, their grip on humanity, these people, because it's through them that God's going to bring the Savior. And so we see Satan's conspiracy to try to stop the Messiah, to devour him through what was given through Pharaoh. We see it in the book of Esther through the conspiracy of Haman. Satan filling his heart. He wanted all Jews to be exterminated. And so a conspiracy, a bill, a law was literally ready to go into to effect where the Jews would be legally exterminated, that if you saw a Jew anywhere, you were supposed to kill them. But yet the plan was thwarted by Esther, who for a time such as this went in before the king, and the plan was exposed, and Mordecai was exalted, and the Jews were spared, because Satan's not going to be able to stop the plan of God. We see it in the corruption of the royal line. God called David to be the king, the captain over his inheritance. And God gave a promise to David. He said that there will never fail a man from the lineage of David to sit upon the throne of Israel. I will build you a house, God said to Jacob, I mean David, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The promise was clear that the Messiah, the Savior, would come not just through Israel, but specifically through the line of David. It would be a descendant of David. Oh, Satan's got his target now. He was shooting at such a broad base, but now he's got it right down. He knows the very line that he needs to attack. And so he goes to work on that line and he institutes corruption and apostasy and iniquity. And he does everything he can to attack that line. And it seems that he wins. Because just prior to the captivity, Jehoiakim, who was the king, he was the one that was in the line, he became so corrupted, so vile, so apostate, that God looked at Jehoiakim and God, through the mouth of the prophet, spoke to him and said, there will never be one of your seed sitting upon the throne of Israel. Ha! Satan got him. He did it. He so corrupted the line that he got God to go back on his word. Now what's God going to do? How is the Messiah going to come into the world now? Well, God had another plan. Because when we read the genealogy of Jesus and how he was brought into the world, we find that Joseph and Mary were both descendants of King David. One of them, Joseph, came down through the line of the kings. In other words, when you follow from David, the succession to Solomon and Rehoboam and then Jeroboam, and then and you go through all the line of the kings all the way down, 
it comes to Joseph. Mary, a descendant of King David also, but not through the line of the kings. Through the son of David, whose name was Nathan, came Mary. And so what does that have to do with this? Well, listen, Joseph did not give seed to Mary to bring forth the Messiah. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was the legal father of Jesus, making him legally heir to the throne. And he was the seed of David because he had Mary's bloodline. And so God fulfilled his word of bringing him through the lineage of David, making him the legal heir of the throne through the bloodline, but yet not through the descendant of Jehoiakim, whom God said, he will never have one that sits on my throne. <laughs> you cannot stop the plan and the purpose of God. But you can't stop the intent or the ambition of the enemy either. And so what did he do? The moment the Savior was born, he put it in the heart of King Herod to kill every child that he could find under the age of two, seeking to keep a king from arising that would be more powerful than him. The slaughter of the innocents also prophesied in Scripture that it would happen. But Christ escaping to Egypt out of the clutches of the jealous king and Satan's plan his conspiracy was yet again thwarted as Herod was not able to, to swipe him out. And now he only has one chance left. He wasn't able to stop Christ from coming. So now, plan B, got to corrupt him. If I can get him to sin, if I can get him to fall after the manner that Adam fell, then I'll have victory. This will be, this, this, this is it right here. It's down to me versus him. So if I can just get him to sin, I win. And so Christ faced temptation, believe me, that you and I will never even know the beginning of. All it took is one sin. If you break the law in one point, the Bible says that you are guilty of all of it. Hebrews says to you and I, it says that you and I have never had to resist against sin to the point of blood. But yet that's exactly what Jesus did, isn't it? See, it wasn't just the temptation that happened in the wilderness. You know, when he said, turn the bread into, you know, or stones into bread and, you know, throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple or bow down and worship me and all this will be yours. Yeah, yeah, that was powerful. That, that's, that was real, you know. And that was complete. Walk out of the will of God. Don't depend upon the word of God. God's plan for your life isn't as good as what you can do for yourself. All of that's real. We face that every day. But the most powerful temptation was in the garden. The garden of Gethsemane. The greatest word of temptation that was ever hurled at Christ on earth was, if you are the son of God, come down from that cross. Can't you call upon 10 legions of angels to help you? Aren't you powerful enough to keep this from happening? That was the, the greatest temptation that he faced. The Bible says to the point where he sweat great drops of blood, hemotridosis, the capillaries breaking because of the intensity of the stress and of the battle. Because if Satan could get him to sin, then he would win. And that's why Jesus on the cross 
said, it is finished. To Telestai, paid in full. When a malefactor or a criminal would be punished in those days, his crimes would be listed upon a placard and placed upon the cross or the means of execution behind him. And upon that sign was written the words, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was the crime, the charge that he claimed. It was blasphemy. Well, the, 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 the means of justice in those days or the symbol of justice in those days is that once the sentence was served, whether it would be a jail sentence or whether it would be some means of physical pain like a a scourging or whether it would be crucifixion, whatever it was, once the sentence was served, they would take that placard and they would stamp it with the words to telestai, which means sentence served. It means paid in full, means they've served their sentence. And that's exactly what Jesus said when he hung on the cross. Not even waiting for the sign to be stamped with the word, he said, to Telestai, paid in full. He won. He did what he had to do. He crushed the head of the serpent. And that day, Satan was defeated. He still reigns. He's still the prince of the power of the air. He's a usurper. But his power, he knows that his time is short. We're going to see that later on in the chapter, that he has been defeated. He has been crushed. He's lost, see. So, verse 5, Satan's failure. Revelation 12, 5. He tried to devour the child as soon as it was born. He failed in that. And then it says, and she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron And it says, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And that is not redundant. That's specific. He wasn't just caught up to God. He was caught up to his throne because he was victorious. Highly exalted, the Bible says. Now, in between verses 5 and 6, the entire church age is tucked in there. In between 5 and 6, you have the entire time from the resurrection and ascension of Christ all the way until the rapture of the church, uh, you know, and, and three and a half years past that into the middle of the tribulation. So remember at the beginning I told you that on earth, you know, the timing is the midway point of the tribulation. In heaven, this covers an eternity of time, you know, this vision and all that's taking place. So in between... Five and six is the time from the ascension when he's caught up to the throne all the way until the middle of the tribulation. And that's where we pick up in verse six, the middle of the tribulation. It says this, and the woman, that is Israel, fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared of God that they should feed her there for a thousand two hundred and sixty days or three and a half years. That is the second half of the tribulation where Israel will be hidden, tucked away, probably in Petra, in in the current land of Jordan, you know, for the second half of the tribulation, shielded supernaturally from Satan's, uh, you know, havoc and God's wrath that's being poured out uh, upon the planet. So that's where where we're at as we touch down on earth real quick, but then in verse 7, we jump right back into uh, heaven, and, and, and now it answers the question, all right, now what? We know that Satan's primary objective was to stop Christ from coming and then from the cross. And he failed in those two things. 
So what's he doing now? Now what's Satan all about? The answer is in these verses. Lotus in verse 7. It says, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And the answer is right there in the verse. I highlighted it in my Bible to make it stand out. Is that what is he about now? What's his business about? It, he's a deceiver. It says that he deceiveth the whole earth. He's already lost the battle. He can't undo the victory that was wrought upon the cross. But what he can do is he can keep as many people as possible from coming to the understanding of that and putting their faith in Christ for salvation. And so he's a deceiver. His wiles are the same. The, the means of his deception, it doesn't change. The same temptations that he brought upon Christ in the desert, same temptations that we face in various different degrees and with different packages. They just look different, but they're the same. The will of God is not what's best. The word of God is not reliable. It's not true. And the plan of God for your life is not as good as what you could do for yourself. It's the same stuff. It's just packaged all kinds of different ways, but it's the same lies. He's a deceiver, and he's very, very good at it. So he deceives. What else does he do? Verse 10. It says, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The second thing that he's about right now is that he is an accuser. Not just a deceiver, but also an accuser. What does that mean that he's an accuser? Well, you know what it means, because the first thing he does, that he always does, is he accuses us to ourselves. But he never does it as Satan. He never comes to us in a red suit with a pointy tail and a pitchfork and, and says, you know, you really blew it there. And boy, are you in trouble. He never does that. That's what, that would be nice, actually, because we would know what's, what he does, because he's a deceiver and he's good at it, is that he comes to us as an angel of light. And he speaks to us with the voice of the Father. He's the master impersonator. And he comes right behind your ear when you've sinned or when you've blown it or, you know, whatever. And he comes right behind you and he says, oh, I'm so disappointed in you, my son. I really would have thought you'd be further along than this now. This struggle that you're facing, that sin that you just gave in. I can't believe you gave in to that again. I really thought you would have the victory. I just... Not sure. Just not sure anymore about you. Might have to put my energy in someone else. You go, I know. I know. You're right. You know, and I'm so sorry. You know, and, and, and what he does is he accuses us to ourselves and he puts us under a cloud of condemnation of thinking that God is angry with us, that God's given up hope on us. 
that God doesn't love us anymore, that he's through with us, that he's giving us over to our sin, that we are Esau. We've given up the birthright. We've thrown it in. That, that, that we are cut off from God. And, and what that cloud of condemnation does, and this is how you know when that's what you're, you're believing, what you're listening to, is that it drives us out of God's presence. I'm ashamed to pray. I wouldn't dare open up my Bible after the way I failed God. You know, who, 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 do I, who am I to think that I have anything from him or, for, you know, before him? He accuses us to ourselves. He also accuses us to God. Job chapter 1. It says that the sons of God presented themselves to God and Satan also was among them. And it says, where have you been? God says to Satan. And Satan replies, he says, going to and fro throughout the earth, seeking whom I might devour. And God looks at him and he says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? I hope my name never comes into that conversation. I hope yours doesn't either. (laughs) And Satan says, yeah, I have actually. (laughs) And they begin a discussion, a dialogue. And Satan brings his observations and his plans before the father and he accuses Job to God. He says he's a mercenary. He only serves you because of the good things that you've given him, but take those things away and he'll curse you to your face. Flesh for flesh, all that a man has will he give in exchange for his flesh. Let me touch his body. Let me me bring sickness. Let me afflict him and he'll curse you to your face. Accusation, bringing accusation about Job to God. That's exactly what Satan does to God about us as often as he can. He sees our weaknesses, he sees our frailties, he records our sins and our iniquities, and then he, like the prosecuting attorney, goes to the judge and he records or recants all of those things to him. And he says, they did this, 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 they did this. Now, pay attention to this, this is important. If a person who's being accused is unsaved, meaning that they they have not given their lives to Jesus Christ, The father who sits behind the throne, who obeys his own laws, who's subject to his own statutes, says to those that are gathered, is there a witness? Has anybody else, can anybody else bear witness to this? And if a person is unsaved, guess what happens? A hand is raised in the courtroom. Who is that? Uh, your honor, it's me, Moses. Um. It is written, thou shalt not lust. It is written, thou shalt not steal. It it, it is written. And and he recants, he, he speaks forth the law. Jesus said that Moses would be a witness in that way. And the father says, wow, well, we have an accuser. We have a witness. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall everything be established. Guilty, and the gavel comes down. But for the person who's saved, for the person who's put their faith in Christ, we are no longer subject or under the law of Moses. It has been rendered inactive for those that have put their faith in Christ. So Satan still accuses. He still brings his case before the father, but then the father says, do I have a witness? 
And the son says, oh, I got this one, Father. And he goes over to Moses and he takes the, the, the charges and, and, and he brings it over to the judge. And the judge looks at it and he says, wait a minute, this, um, this is covered in blood. The, I, I can't even read this. That's what it says in Colossians. <laughs> that the handwriting of ordinances that was against us was blotted out. That's what it says. And so he says, this is covered in blood. I can't even read this. Is there anybody else? So the father looks at the devil and he says, scram. <laughs> you don't have a leg to stand on. And that's why it says, when you look over at verse 11, it says that they overcame him, how? By the blood of the lamb. Because his accusation has no place in heaven for those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ. He also accuses us to one another. How many times have we experienced that? Married men. <laughs> Where Satan will come to you and I and he'll begin to talk to us about our wife. Or vice versa. Or about another brother in the church. Can you believe what they, what they were saying about you? They were what? Yeah, didn't you see them talking over there in the other corner of church? You know what they were talking about. They were talking about you. And all of a sudden, now we go, well, yeah, they probably were. <laughs> and since he's such a good deceiver, <laughs> it's easy to believe, isn't it? And we've all felt it. You know, the solution to all three accusations is given in, in verse 11. How do, we, how do we combat the accusation of Satan. It says in verse 11, they overcame him, first of all, by the blood of the Lamb. We already talked about that. Our accusation that he brings before the Father is null and void because of the blood of Christ. Done deal, paid in full. But what about the accusation that he brings upon us when he accuses us to ourselves and we get condemned, we're under the cloud? Notice the next thing. It says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the word of their testimony. See, God has given each of us a testimony. If you're saved, then you are like the blind man in John chapter 9. Remember the blind man in John chapter 9? They, the Pharisees came to him and they said, is this guy, who is this guy? He goes, look, look, look. He goes, I'm a real simple guy. I've only been able to see for about 24 hours. He goes, I only know two things in this world right now. He goes, I was blind. I now see. And that's about all I know about him. <laughs> you know? And every Christian that is saved has that. We know what we were before we were saved, and we know what we are now. We know we're not perfect. We're not what we should be. But we also know that we're not what we were, and we're not what we're going to be. And that's how you overcome the accusation of the enemy when he comes to you and says, you have no place in the Father. No. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will never leave you or forsake you, the Bible says. And so you overcome that accusation, how? By the word of your testimony. No, 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 no. I know he's at work within my life. I know that he's not going to give up on me. I know I'm messed up. But he's faithful. And he's not going to leave me. And so that's how you overcome the accusation of the enemy that he brings to you. What about the third one? 
the enemy who accuses others to us and accuses us to others. How do you overcome that? Notice the third thing that says there at the end of verse 11. It says, and they loved not their lives unto death. As we allow the love of Christ to not just affect us, but to flow through us to others. And we are like Christ and we love people unconditionally. Satan can't bring accusation against love. Love covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. 1 Peter 4, 7. Have fervent love for yourselves. As it is written, love covers a multitude of sins. And when you sincerely love and you allow the love of Christ to pour forth from you, Satan can still accuse you to others. But that accusation is going to fail. People might believe it for a week or a month, but ultimately they're going to realize that's bonk. Why? Because you don't love your life unto death. You're not about you. You're not living for you. It's not all about your thing and your case and your position and what you want and all all that kind of thing. That you sincerely care about the well-being of someone else. And that can't be true about anyone but a Christian. Only a Christian has power from the Holy Spirit to sincerely care about someone else. And when we give ourselves to that kind of life, no accusation that Satan can try to bring between two brothers or a husband and a wife can stand. When I love my wife like Christ loved the church, Satan can tell her all day that I'm cheating on her. And she'll say, no, he's not. Because she knows the love. Vice versa. That she's just trying to get under your skin. She's trying to bankrupt this family, you know, <laughs> whatever, however his lies come in, you know. But see, sincere love combats that. You can't stand up under it. So he's the accuser, but he can't stand as the accuser. So he's cast out as the deceiver. His testimony fails as the accuser, and so he's only got one thing left that he could do, and we're out of time. <laughs> but, but, but let's just look at it quick, verse 13. It says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, here it is, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. When Satan can't get you with deception, and he can't get you with accusation, there's only one thing left for him to do, and that is to try to hurt you. Persecution. Wipe you out. Yeah, uh, uh, sure, he didn't curse you when I took away his house and his land, but let me touch his skin and he'll curse you to his face, to your face. Go ahead. God gave him permission. Isn't that scary? It's actually comforting. Because Satan couldn't do it without permission. (laughs) And so that's what Satan will do. When he can't get you any other way, he'll hurt you or try. And he can't go one step further, not one hairbreadth further than what God allows. But that's what he'll try to do, to get you to turn away, to doubt God's love, to sin, whatever whatever he can. And that's what we see here in the text. You can read on the rest of the chapter. And, you know, if this was, you know, a study of the book of Revelation, it would be real interesting. But it's not. It's a study of Satan. So, (laughs) anyway. The wiles of Satan. So we'll continue with this. I thought that was great. I had such a blast uh, studying that myself. I hope it was a blessing to you. 